0: Well, I want to wish everyone a Merry Christmas, and I want to encourage you to open your Bible with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. We love to tell the Christmas story, and I think we all carry in our minds this mental image of the nativity scene. And we've got all the different characters and we can just close our eyes and imagine it even now. And so many of us have nativity scenes in our homes. I see we have one here, beautiful nativity scene in our, in our sanctuary today. And this is the time of the year uh, that we most uh, remember that and celebrate that Jesus was born into the flesh Uh, I think in these nativity scenes that we imagine and that we have in our homes, there are some elements that are biblical, and then there are some elements that perhaps are extra biblical. Uh, I'll go through a few of those. In the very first real nativity scene, uh, there would have been a Mary and a Joseph. And so if you've got those, you're doing well. And in the first nativity scene, there would have been a baby Jesus, of course, and there's a chance that there would have been shepherds. It's, it really depends on when you took the picture, right? And uh, in the very beginning, no shepherds, and then there were shepherds, and then there weren't shepherds. But yeah, if you cast your nativity scene at the right spot, there would have been shepherds. But then we have some extra biblical things in our nativity scenes. Uh, often there is an ox or a donkey, and that makes some sense. The Bible May allude to that in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 3. And perhaps Mary rode a donkey uh, with Joseph from Nazareth to Bethlehem. It would have been about a 65 mile journey across the Jezreel Valley. Uh, Hopefully, she had a donkey. Uh, Maybe a cow or a camel or a sheep. Uh, I've seen nativity scenes with elephants in them. And I don't know nothing's impossible. Uh, we often see nativity scenes with angels. Now, uh, that would not almost certainly have been seen in the first nativity scene. There were no, uh, apparent angels, no visible angels there. Uh, we often see the wise men in the nativity scene and that's that's not right, but it's not wrong either. The wise men did visit Jesus, likely a year or two later, uh, but they did come eventually. And often the nativity scene includes the star that guided the wise men to Jesus. And of course, if the, if the wise men came two years later, the star came two years later. Uh, but still, If Jesus is in the middle of your nativity scene, it's a good nativity, right? You can put whatever kind of animals that you want, stars, wise men, you can include dinosaurs and cell phone towers. As long as Jesus is there, I like it. At my house, we keep our nativity scene up. By the way, ours includes both the biblical and the extra biblical things, but we keep it up year round. I want to always be reminded of the incarnation of Christ. But as common and as comforting as the Christmas story is, it really, if we look at it afresh, raises some very thought-provoking questions. Some questions that we don't ordinarily ask. Uh, Some questions that some might even suggest are not respectful, though I think they are. And some questions that are really hard to answer. And so in this little message series that we'll begin today, and it'll be four messages, but really two and then some pieces, we'll, we'll, we'll preach today and then next Sunday, the 18th. And then I'm going to share just a tiny bit of this with you on Christmas Eve and then Christmas morning again. But in this little message series, what I want to do is to provide some of the biblical answers to these really, really difficult, thought-provoking questions this will seem a little random over the next few services. Uh, ordinarily, we would take a passage of scripture and just walk through that passage a little bit at a time each week. We're going to skip all over uh, with, this, uh, with this series of messages. But hopefully, we can provide some biblical answers uh, to these questions. My goal is that we would decipher some Christmas mysteries. So now, I want you to partner with me in this by doing more than just listening to the sermons, two more things. Number one, I would like for you to discuss some of these questions with your family around your dinner table over the next week or two. I've provided some of the questions there in your worship guide, and we'll read through some of those in a moment. But won't you sit with your family and just address two or three of these questions each night? Uh, they're not easy questions. Uh, But I think as you lean into these questions, you will have some very good discussions. Uh, I want to say to any of our children who who are listening, who are still in our services today, your parents are experts at all of these things. And if you'll ask these questions, just hold on to the worship guide. You start at lunch today and your parents will give very good, well thought out, biblical answers. You test them in this. Now, the other thing I'd like for you to do is if you've thought of some other questions and not just questions, you'll see in these questions that what I've tried to do is to identify some oddities, some Christmas oddities. And so if you can think of some things that are just really unusual about Christmas, uh, send them to me in an email and perhaps we will work them into one of these messages. But you see, if you have a worship guide, some of the questions, I'll read just a few of them. It begins, why would the holy, righteous, eternal, all-powerful God bother to come to rescue sinful, rebellious, and mortal people? That's not an easy question to answer. Why is there even a Christmas? Another question, why would the eternal Son of God come as a weak, helpless, vulnerable baby? How did God even come up with a with a plan like this, that the Son of God would be born as a baby. Why would Jesus come to earth as a man in such a way that he couldn't speak, he couldn't take care of himself, he couldn't protect himself, or engage in any kind of ministry or messaging for years? Doesn't that seem odd? Why was the Son of God born in the tiny, backwoods, roughneck town of Bethlehem? Why was it allowed that Jesus was born into a situation was where Mary was traveling and no pre-arrangements pre or planning had been made, no reasonable accommodations were available? Uh, we can think of a dozen questions that point to some of the oddities of Christmas. But I believe in every one of these oddities that we could discover there is a very important lesson for us to learn. So we will will attack those today. So if you're looking at your outline, I want to start with point number two, just because I know how some of you love to fill in the blanks. Number two, God's strength and provision become evident in our weakness and our inadequacy. Weakness and inadequacy. Alright, we're finished with that point. We may come back to it next week. I want to focus all of our attention on point one. God values us. God values us. Uh, there is a key piece of the biblical data here that we need to that we need to evaluate that addresses the question of how much God values us. What is the motivation for God's love? For God's value in us. Uh, This is uh, the answer to this question really provides the foundation for everything else we know and learn in the Bible. So let's talk about God's love. I want to ask and answer a few questions. Number one, why do I say in the outline that God values us instead of saying that God loves us? Well, listen, church, God does love us. There's no question. John three sixteen it's the verse that we all know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God does love us. But when we use the word love, we, we're often making an emotional statement. Uh, we say that we have fallen in love with someone. Well, that's not a statement of value. That's just a statement of emotions. And emotions fade over time. So, God does not love us in the sense that he has fallen in love with us and it's some emotional sentiment. Another reason why I shy away from the word love is that often we use the love just, the word love just to communicate our preference. I love butter pecan ice cream, okay? That's, that's not real love. That's just a preference and preferences change. And so I'm hesitant to say simply that God loves us, though he does, because too often we think of some emotional sentiment or just some preference. God doesn't just feel warm hearted about us. God values us. God sees some value in each of us. He values us. Now, when you value something, what do you do? Well, you long for it. You want it. You desire it. You seek for it. You focus on it. You protect it. You sacrifice for it. You cherish it. And God does all of those things for us. God values us. Now, that leads me to the second question about God's love. How could God love or value people? Why would God value us? We are weak. We are depraved. We are rebellious, ungrateful, we are selfish. Is anybody here not all of those things? How could God value us? Well, there are two reasons the Bible gives. First, God values us, God loves us, simply because God has chosen to love us. I may not seem like much of an answer, but it is an answer and it's an important answer. It's the most important answer. God does not love us because of something in us. God loves us because of something in him. God does not love us because we're worthy of his love. God doesn't love us because we have some intrinsic value. God doesn't love us because we're exceptional in some way. God loves us simply because he's chosen to love us. Because of that, we should be amazed at the love of God. Now, if we deserved God's love in some way, if we had earned or merited God's love, then we wouldn't be amazed at it. We would think, well, that's what I deserve. I can sort of understand why God would love me. Just look at me. Why wouldn't God love me? But when we understand the truth the question isn't why wouldn't God love me, but the real question is why in the world would God love me? And when we recognize how unworthy we are, then we are properly amazed at the love of God. I'm afraid we get this mixed up too often, and I know I'm guilty of this. In fact, I was looking this week as I was preparing my messages. Uh, I, I went back and looked at all the Christmas messages I've preached In all my life, I've preached a bunch of Christmas messages, and I found a sermon I preached December the 8th, 1996. Uh, I'd only been a pastor, a senior pastor for uh, two years, a little less than two years at the time. That's no excuse for this message, but here's the message I found, and I think I need to go back to that church and issue an apology to them, Uh, but here's the message. I titled it, Why Did God Use Mary? Luke 1, 26 through 55. So don't write this outline down, please. But here's why I told that church that God used Mary. Because Mary glorified God, verse 46. Mary rejoiced in God, verse 47. Mary humbled herself before God, verse 48. Mary feared God, verse 50. And Mary knew God, verses 51 through 55. Now what's wrong with that message? Everything is wrong with that message. God did not choose Mary for any of those reasons. Mary was not worthy of God's special love and blessing. If she had been, she wouldn't have been amazed. No, if there, there wasn't anything special about Mary, that's the point of all of this. God loved Mary and God used Mary, not because Mary was worthy of it, but simply because God chose to use Mary. God chooses to love us. And we should be amazed at that exactly because we don't deserve his love. Well, the other part of why God would love us, and it really goes hand in hand with God's choice, but God values us because we have been created in the image of God. If you heard that phrase before, image of God, you see it often in scripture, first in Genesis one, and 27, the Bible says that God has created us in his image and that image of God, whatever it is, that image of God, that's what makes us valuable. I think I've shared this story with you before, but in the first church I pastored, we had a Senior adult lady who didn't have any family that supported her, and uh, I don't remember all of the details, but she just uh, she ended up in a terrible situation financially, and she was in a rental house, I think, of some sort, and she could no longer afford to stay there. She didn't have any money, as I said, she didn't have any support, and it was really a, a dire situation. Uh, well, I'd been in her home a number of times, and. And there was something remarkable about this uh, about this home she had and it must have been thousands of these little ugly ceramic figurines everywhere every windowsill every horizontal surface every room even the bathrooms there were all these little ugly Ceramic figures. Some of them were birds or salt shakers or ashtrays or uh, uh, flowers. It, they were just everywhere. Well, so people went over to help her pack her stuff, which really amounted to just throwing everything away because she did have a lot of junk. And it just so happened that one of the people from the church that went over to help her knew something about ceramic junk. Okay. And they turned over one of those figurines and it said, Occupied Japan. Now it turns out, and I don't fully know why, I'm sure somebody here will tell me when the service is over, that makes those little figurines worth something. In fact, uh, they were worth a great deal. And it turned out, When she was able to sell those thousands of figurines, occupied Japan figurines, she got enough money to take care of all her financial problems and provide for her a place to live, I suppose, the rest of her days. Now, what's the lesson there? Those little ceramic things weren't worth throwing away, except for one thing, that imprint on the bottom occupied Japan. Listen, you and I aren't worth throwing away, except for one thing, that we have been created in the image of God. That's why God loves us. That's why God values us. You and I are utterly worthless, sinful, selfish creatures, except that we're stamped by the image of God. You see this played out so many different ways in the Christmas story. Uh, If you look at who the announcement was made, who the Lord, the Father, announced the coming of Jesus, he announced Christmas to the shepherds. Now, sometimes we get this romanticized uh, picture of the shepherds, but you've got to understand that these were farmhands, uh, with uh, no education and no wealth and no influence and no platform. Uh, further, uh, these were the ones working the nighttime shift, so you know they weren't even the the uh, the upper echelon of the farm hands uh, there in the in the area of Bethlehem. And these dirty, stinky, unkempt men—that's who God announced the birth of the Christ child, and. You can't help but wonder, why didn't God announce uh, the birth to some better people than that, some better people than these shepherds? Well, I'll tell you why, because there were no better people, because value is determined by whether or not you've been created in the image of God. And there's nothing that will add value beyond that. These were created in the image of God. They were the best people. And every person is the best person. Because we've been created in the image of God, that's what gives us value. Not education, wealth, influence, platform. What does this teach us? It teaches us, first of all, that we are valuable to God. Sometimes I talk to people that are just crushed because they don't think they have value anymore. They'll say, Pastor, I've failed in life. I have failed in business. I have failed in marriage. I have failed with my children. I have failed, I have failed, I have failed. And listen, I'm sorry, and and I'm with you. We all fail in ways, but the truth is, you were never valuable because of your potential to succeed. And you would not be more valuable to God had you not failed. Because your value is not tied to how successful you've been in life or marriage or business or finances or, or child raising. Your value depends upon the fact that you've been created in the image of God. So you're valuable. No matter what the world may say, you're valuable. The other thing that teaches us is that every person has equal value to God. No matter their socioeconomic category or level, no matter their race, no matter their nationality, whether they're Democrats or they're Republicans, uh, whether they uh, pull for Texas A&M or UT, both of those are close to the same value to the Lord. Uh, we, <laughs> our value depends Upon the fact that we're created in the image of God. Image of God. So how could God love people? Because God's chosen to. That's amazing. And because God has created us in his image. Well, which person of the Trinity loves us? Uh, The Bible says that there is one God. And he is in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God the Father, Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit. So of God, the father, God, the son, and God, the Holy Spirit, which one loves us? Now this may seem like a crazy question, but I I hear people say things all the time that I, I, I think Uh, indicate that we get confused about this. I I hear people say that the Father is holy and righteous and just. And the Father demands that sin be paid for. And the Father punishes every sin and every sinner. But the Son loves us. And the Son wants to rescue us from the wrath of the Father. And the Son balances out the just demands of the Father with his sacrificial love. Is that true? No. No. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God is holy and righteous and just. And the triune God loves us and desires to rescue us from the penalty of sin. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all involved in in our salvation. And they're all involved even in the incarnation. We think about this time of year, we're celebrating Christ the Son. And certainly, we are celebrating Christ the Son. But I want you to see that the whole triune God is involved in this. The Bible says in Romans 3.25 that first, there was the patience of the Father, You know that there would have been no need for Christ to come had God not been patient, had God not been long-suffering with the sins of man. So a big part of Christmas is the patience of the Father. And then the Bible says in those familiar verses, John 3, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. And then you go to the next verse, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. So God, the father sends the son and then the son, first 1 Timothy 1:15 1, says, Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That was his motivation. Philippians 2, 6 through 8. I love this passage. My favorite passage, I think, in the, in the New Testament says that, that Jesus, though he was God, did not consider his status as God as an opportunity to bless himself, but he saw it as an opportunity to bless us. So he humbled himself and he became flesh and he lived a sinless life and died on the cross. And then the Holy Spirit the Bible says in Luke 1.35 that the Holy Spirit facilitated the birth of Christ by overshadowing Mary, and that's how Christ was conceived. And then the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 2.10 that God has revealed these things to us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We wouldn't even know about Christmas. We wouldn't even know about what Christ had done were it not for the ministry of the Spirit. So here's what I want you to, here's what I want you to see. We celebrate Christmas and we think of Christ and certainly we should celebrate what Christ has done, but Christmas is not just about what Christ has done. Christmas just as much is about what the Father has done as he has been patient with us and then he has sent Christ into the world. And Christmas is about Christ who came to die for sinners. And Christmas is about the Holy Spirit who calls the conception of Christ and who communicates the message of Christ to us. When we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate the Father, the Son, and the the Spirit. Now, question number four here, why does the triune God love us in such a strange way. Now, let's be honest about the Christmas story, the incarnation. It's an odd story. It's bizarre, really. I I, I don't know that we often think of it like that just because we're so accustomed to it. But think about what happened. Jesus, who created the universe, the Bible says, Jesus, who is the sovereign, powerful God, becomes flesh and blood and becomes a baby put in a feeding trough by a peasant woman who had no money and no good ability to plan for the future, apparently. Didn't have a place for the child to be born. Um, It even seems kooky, and I did look that up. It's a word. <laughs> um, it almost seems unnecessary, some of, the, some of the parts, some of the elements of the Christ, Christmas story. And even if we set aside the whole idea that God became flesh, which is what we'll focus on next week, if the Lord allows, we're still left with the question, why did the eternal Christ, the creator of the universe, the sovereign Lord Why did he come as a little, helpless, vulnerable, defenseless baby? Why did Jesus come in such a way that he couldn't feed himself? He couldn't keep himself from soiling his swaddling clothes. And he couldn't even speak. Why would he be born to a peasant woman in a family that apparently was not very good at planning for the future and with a stepfather with no wealth? with all the miracles that Christ would do, like calming the storm and feeding the 5,000, like uh, walking on water, raising Lazarus from the dead, why didn't he arrange for some room in the inn? Uh, Why didn't he have a feeding uh, bed instead of a feeding trough? And then you think about the wise men which we're going to focus on in a couple of weeks. Why did they bring such useless gifts? No baby needs gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Why didn't they check the baby registry? They could have brought disposable diapers, wipes, baby swing. How about a stroller? So this is a really odd way for, for the Lord to seek to save the world. Sending God as a helpless baby to a peasant woman in an impoverished area. What if this were the Christmas story? I've got a, I've got a better version of it. What if the incarnation would have been announced by the host of angels, not to the shepherds, but to the entire planet. Now, God could have done that, surely. And angels begin to announce and sing in such a way that everybody on the face of the earth looks up and they, and they see the angels. Wouldn't that have been something? And so if I would have been in charge of this, Jesus would have arrived with flashes of fire, with lightning, with smoke, with earthquakes, There would have been an announcer with a really low voice. Let's get ready to rumble. And everybody would have stood up. If I would have been in charge of this, Jesus would have been incarnated as a full grown man. The strongest, smartest, most beautiful, most charismatic and wealthiest man ever to step upon the earth. And he would have been accompanied by a legion of angels ready to serve his every need. Why didn't God do it that way? Well, there are multiple good answers to that question. And we'll see some of those in the next couple of weeks. Uh, But I want to give you one I think is important today. God, through Christ, is asking you to love him. That's what Christmas is about. Jesus comes and lives a sinless life, dies on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And God, through all of that, is saying to me and to you, would you love me? Would you follow me? Would you trust me? But true love cannot form in the presence Of awesome power. Now, listen to this. This may be a thought you've not had before. True love cannot form in the presence of awesome power because power precludes the formation of love. If God would have come and demonstrated all of his power and all of his glory, if if God would have come and just unfurled his holiness to all the world, what would the world have done? We would have bowed on our knees. We would have cried, holy, holy, holy. But listen, church, it wouldn't have been by choice. It would have been because of the overwhelming glory, power, and presence of God would have driven us to our knees. When we saw how great God was and how sinful we are, when we saw his might and power and wisdom Everybody would bow, but nobody would choose to bow. You know, the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2 that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Now, every there doesn't refer to Christians. It refers to everybody. So why will all people, even lost people in hell one day Say Jesus is Lord. Well, because when God shows Himself in all of His glory, we'll have no choice. But love requires a choice. I'll explain it this way: if I am, uh, if I told you that I wanted you to show me some respect, uh, show me respect, or show the position I hold some respect, and I want you to sit there quietly. And listen. Okay, you've got a choice, right? You can show respect to me or the position I hold, and you can sit there and you can pay attention and and you can choose to show respect. But you can also choose otherwise, right? You could get up and walk out. You can throw your arms up and say, I'm I'm fed up with this, and you could just make a scene and run out the door. You have a choice, right? And so if you stay then that indicates that you've chosen to respect either me or the position and you're, you've chosen respect. Now, another s- scenario, let's say I ask you to show me some respect and to sit quietly while I speak. And then I pull out a machine gun. And I say, the next person that makes a sound or stands up, I'm going to shoot you with this machine gun. And just so you know I'm serious, I just start with Mark. <laughs> and I, uh, I put about 10 rounds in him. And uh, sorry for those of you sitting behind. And uh, then I look out. Now, what do you think I would see when I looked out? I'd see a bunch of people with their mouths closed and their fannies in the seat, right? Right. Uh, Maybe not, because I know how many of you are probably carrying firearms. <laughs> but let's say, uh, let's say I, I was preaching in New Hampshire or somewhere. Uh, listen, you would respect, but you wouldn't choose to respect. You're simply responding to the fear that you're going to get shot next. You, you, you see, you, you have it cho- it's not respect then. It's just, you don't have a choice. Listen, God could come here right now in this space and he could show us his glory, his honor. God could come down into Nacogdoches today in such a way that the glory, the power, the honor, the holiness of God would be evident throughout this city. Why doesn't God do that? Everybody in Nacogdoches would bow on their knees. So why doesn't God do that? Because God wants us to choose to love him. Does that make sense? Why did Jesus come as a baby in a manger and not as a warrior in the power and the might of God? Because God wants us to choose to follow Him. God wants us to choose to love Him. When we look at the Christmas story, we ought to see a gentle invitation to follow and love the Lord. That's why it's a babe in the manger. Now, let me ask you to bow your head and close your eyes for a moment. And I'm saying that because I, I want you with no distractions to think about this. There will be a day when every person will bow before the Lord. When we see God in his holiness, in his, in his might, in his power, there will be no choice. We will be overwhelmed. That's called the day of Judgment. But today, mercifully, God comes to us not as this righteous, holy king who has demonstrated his divinity, but he comes to us as a little baby who lives a sinless life and dies on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And he says, Come, follow me, love me. While we can still choose, may we love him. Father in heaven, I pray that those hear my voice today who've never loved you, who have never surrendered their life, who've never trusted your you and your sacrifice on the cross for salvation, that, Father, they will hear this quiet, gentle message before it's too late, and that we will love you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand in both services. Let's stand.